number 367 will be the song we shall sing together when the Lord's invitation is once again extended. And I want to join with Brother Williams in expressing again the appreciation of the elders of the congregation, of Brother Warren and I, and of the entire congregation. For each and every visitor, we have many, many visitors, and we're glad you're here, and we hope that you want to remain and will remain for the entire week. Now, I do not have a problem of an exaggerated introduction. Brother Estes made some comments that uh, helps along that line. I heard of a lady who met a man on Monday, married him on Tuesday, judge performing the ceremony, and then returned to the judge on Wednesday and announced that she wanted to begin proceedings for a divorce, and the judge was amazed. He said, why, you've been married to this man only for a day. Why is it that you are now desirous of beginning divorce proceedings? She said, well, Judge, the facts are simply this. He was the most overintroduced man I ever met. <laughs> so at least I don't have that problem. It is an exalted privilege and a wonderful opportunity to be able to speak on the subject and the exalted theme of this lectureship the beautiful bride of Christ. You know, there's a song in our book entitled Near to the Heart of God, and I really do not know of any way that you could possibly get nearer to the heart of God than the church, nearer to the heart of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit than through the church. Now, the bride of Christ in the Old Testament was, of course, the nation of Israel. In Jeremiah 3:14, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. And, of course, the children of God were not a faithful bride for very long at a time. And even after there was a division and uh, Judah and the northern kingdom existed, first uh, the northern kingdom fell, and then Judah did not learn very much from the fall of the northern kingdom. But the fact remains that the bride of Christ in the Old Testament was Israel. In Jeremiah 2 and in verse 32, Can a maid forget her ornaments, or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. I've often said that I don't know whether I've ever seen an ugly bride or not. There have been a few that have been on the borderline case, I think. But I don't know whether I ever saw an ugly bride or not. Now, the brides do not forget their attire. And as long as they live, they remember that attire. But he said, can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people, my people, have forgotten me days without number. And then in Jeremiah 2 and in verse 36, Why gattest thou about so much to change thy way? Thou also shalt be ashamed of Egypt, as thou wast ashamed of Assyria. Now the northern kingdom, of course, had gone to captivity by this time. The southern kingdom did not learn very much from the northern kingdom. In fact, they are held chargeable with even greater sin than the northern kingdom. And the bride of God in the Old Testament, Israel, was a keen disappointment unto him, as I've suggested time and time and time again. 
But further in Jeremiah 3 and in verse 6, And the Lord said unto me, or the Lord said unto me also, and to me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen what backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. Now imagine how often God had to deal with this gadding, unfaithful bride. And I said, after she had done all those things, turn thou to me. But she returned not. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. The southern kingdom saw what God did to the northern kingdom after the fall or during the fall. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredoms that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. And yet for all of this, her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly saith the Lord. Now note in the next verse. And the Lord said unto me, here's the conclusion of this matter. In verse 11, and I've read verses 7 through 10 already, but in verse 11, And the Lord said unto me, the backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. He simply suggested that Judah, having greater advantages and opportunity, was even more repulsive in the sight of God. Now, the Jews were married to the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandment law. But upon the death of that law, which Paul argues quite in detail is husband number one, then the Jews had the right, the privilege, indeed the exalted honor to be married to another husband, to another lawgiver, to Christ and to his law. Paul argues this in Romans 7, 1 through 4. Know ye not, brethren, and then parenthetically he says, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Now then, let us note in verse 4 the conclusion. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law. And I wish our Adventist friends would realize this and others. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be, note this expression, married to another that ye should bring, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now then, if while the law of Moses was in effect, if those Jews had been married to another law and another lawgiver, 
they would have been guilty of spiritual adultery. While Christ was upon this earth, he was not married to the church, for the church did not exist. Denominational preachers often contend, and certainly erroneously, erroneously contend, that Christ was married to the church, they say, while he was upon this earth, the church did not exist. And they often misapply Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it. And then they raise this question. They say, well, if he gave himself up for it, it of necessity must have existed. But that is not true. Now then, in comparison to a, a man and a woman, a young man who desires to marry a young lady, the young lady exists even during their courtship. I think sometimes he's far more aware she exists, so she thinks, during that time than after he's been married to her for about 15 or 20 years. But she exists. But she is not his wife. Now then, there were those who left all and followed our Lord during his personal ministry. They did not constitute the church because the church had not yet been set up. But our Lord died in order that the church be purchased, and he did purchase it with his own blood, and then these people who were following him along with others who obeyed the gospel, as we learn on, uh, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, became obedient and thus were married. But married unto whom? Not unto him who was uh, here upon the earth during the personal ministry, not during that time, but unto him who is raised from the dead, that ye, we might bring forth fruit unto God. Now then in the New Testament, in Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 33, we have what I regard one of the most remarkable and wonderful outstanding and outstanding passages in all the Bible, a marvelous parallel between husband and wife, Christ and the church. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might uh, sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Even so ought husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his own wife loveth himself. For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as Christ also the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause... Shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? This mystery is great, but I speak in regard of Christ and the church. Nevertheless, do you also severally love each one his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see that she fear her husband? Now, in this particular passage, and there's so many marvelous truths in it, we have uh, so much said about the home and about the church, but we're talking today about the church, the beautiful bride of Christ. Now, the matter of the figure of marriage here used involves explicitly and implicitly a number of things. For example, it is a great honor for a bride to wear the bridegroom's name, her husband's name. And I have known of only perhaps one or two people who are uh, women who have decided that they did not want to wear their husband's name. Now, others might feel as they want, but if I, 
If I had ever dated a girl that didn't want to wear my name, I would have said, you find somebody else, and I'll find somebody else. The Bible says in John 3, 29, John the Baptist speaking, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Now, that's Christ. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom. You might think of John as the best man from that comparison. But the friend of the bridegroom that standeth and heareth rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is full. And in verse 30 he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, For I have espoused you. Well, first he said, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. You might think of John as the best man in the figure that he used. You think of Paul as the matchmaker. He espoused them to one husband that he might present them as a pure virgin to Christ. But I mention, it is a great honor for the bride to wear the name of her husband. This was predicted in the Old Testament in Isaiah 56 and in verse 5. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name. Note that. And a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. No number one that he said, I will give, looking down the streams of time into the future from that time, which we now looking back know that it was the name Christian. He said, I will give them a name, number one, in mine house and within my walls. And he said, a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. The church is the wife or bride of Christ, as we have read in Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. In the next place, you will note that he said that this name is an everlasting name. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, when would this occur? The Bible is very minute and explicit about this matter. In Isaiah, 6, Isaiah 62, 2, And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name. Now note the source of this name. Which the mouth of the Lord shall name or will name. Now the new name was to be given by God within his house. A name better than of sons and of daughters. It's an everlasting name, but it is to be given when both Jew and Gentile have accepted the gospel of Christ. In Acts 11:26, in fact, in verse 25, it is said of Barnabas as he sought for Saul, then Barnabas departed to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a year, whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. Now note. And the disciples were called. And that word called comes from a word that means divinely called. It was not given in derision as denominational preachers from time to time appear, and uh, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. 
the disciples were called Christians, it said, first in Antioch. In Acts 26, 28, when Paul was seeking to convert Agrippa, and almost did so, then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. He wasn't trying to persuade him to be a Catholic or a Protestant. He was seeking to persuade him to be a Christian. And we are commanded to glorify God in that family name. In 1 Peter 4, 16, But if a man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. In Acts 4 and in verse 12 of the name of Christ it is said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now, brethren and friends, there is no name comparable to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of all of the passages in the New Testament pertaining to this, I think one of the most exalted of all is to be found in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, yea, the death of the cross. Wherefore also God hath highly exalted him, gave unto him the name, note that, the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We sing the beautiful song, Precious Name. Oh, how sweet. One of the exalted privileges of being a Christian, a member of the church, the beautiful bride of Christ, is that we wear his name. But I would suggest, furthermore, there are tremendous rewards involved in being a part of the bride of Christ. Every spiritual blessing, all of them, you cannot name a one that is outside of Christ, all are to be enjoyed within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now note the location, in Christ. I've tried to think through the years as to how many spiritual blessings I could name, and I'm not sure. I know I can name forgiveness of sins, the hope of heaven, a hundredfold in this life, and therefore in the world to come eternal life fellowship with faithful brethren, many, many, many other things that could be named. I might not even be able to stand here and name every one of them uh, at the snap of a finger, but all of them in Christ. And if you are part of the bride of Christ, you enjoy these blessings. And every promise that has been made to us of a spiritual nature, all of them are in the church of Christ. Now, none of them are to be found in the churches built by men and women. In 2 Corinthians 1 and in verse 20, For how many soever be the promises of God, in him is the yea, wherefore also through him is the amen, unto the glory of God through us. These are marvelous, marvelous rewards for us in being Christians. And then there is a tremendous 
responsibility in wearing the name Christian. There was a song years and years ago that people used to sing, some people used to sing, it's nobody's business what I do. It is somebody's business what you do. Paul says in Romans 14, 7, that no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. We have a responsibility to live the Christian life. We have a responsibility to preach the gospel. As Brother Estes so eloquently said, we have the obligation to stand for the truth of the gospel. In Philippians 1, 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the point I'm making. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or be absent, I may hear of your state, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one soul, striving for together for the faith of the gospel. We have responsibilities. As an American, I have a responsibility to believe the Constitution. As an American, I have an obligation to practice democracy to be a good citizen. And as has already been mentioned, both in the prayer and in the announcements, when people try to wreck our homes, when women uh, seek to usurp the authority of men, when there are those who argue that elders have no authority, when there are those who practice homosexuality, pornography, immodesty, vulgarity of various kinds, cursing, swearing of various types, we must oppose that, but furthermore, we must so live that people can see that we do not endorse such, that we endorse the very opposite of that. Now, not only is the church the bride of Christ, but the church is the beautiful bride of Christ. And I want us to note a few things that have to do with this beauty and and I've already said some things, but to say some additional things that have to do with the beauty of the church and keeping her beautiful. I would mention, number one, we must keep our priorities straight. Jesus said in Matthew 6, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Number one, there is a command, seek ye. Number two, there is the objective of the command, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then he said, seek ye first. I'll tell you the major reason. There are many component parts to this problem. But I'll tell you, really, the taproot of the little end of the whole matter, as Brother Hardiman used to say, is simply this. There are numerous brethren who no longer have their priorities straight. Now, I've preached in gospel meetings uh, through the years, and I've gone to places on occasion when, for example, some ball game was in progress, important ball game. And there have been some young people who were so strong and their parents encouraged them so to be, they attended service and didn't go to the game if it came on the night of the service. But I go to gospel meetings now, and some brethren say to me, and seemingly without any embarrassment whatever, well, you know my child has this and so tonight, so they can't come, and they're members of the church. And by the way, some of the parents do not come either. There is much lukewarmness. There is much loss of conviction. 
There is a failure to come to grips with what the Lord said in Luke 14.33. So therefore, whosoever he be of you that renounceth not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. I do not believe it's proper for us to preach a watered-down Christianity on any point. And we had best begin where the Lord begins with seeking the kingdom first, keeping our priorities straight. And our morals must be of the highest order, as I've already implied or said. There must be a line that is wide, a line of demarcation, a gulf that is deep and wide between the lack of morals among those who do not serve God and the good morals set out in the book of God as practiced by us. In James 4, 4, you adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore would be a friend of the world maketh himself an enemy of God. And in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. When we have been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less time to sing his praise than when we first begun. To keep the church beautiful, we must practice discipline, both corrective and preventive. I'm sure that some of you have read what I'm about to uh, mention. I saw this printed years ago, and I hope somebody only used it to illustrate a point. I hope it was fictitious, but here's the way it went. It said that a man in another state was invited, a member of the church was invited, to uh, become an elder, at least consider, allow his name to be put before the congregation that he might be considered for the eldership. But he said, no, I, I don't believe that, uh, I don't believe it would be good for me to do that. He said, you see, I drink, I smoke, I curse, I'm immoral, I dance. He said, you know, I don't really believe that uh, I could qualify to be an elder. Now, I'll just remain a faithful Christian, <laughs> but I can't be an elder. Now, one of our brethren wrote a, a tract entitled The Forgotten Command, or Forgotten Commandment, speaking of discipline. Now, the preventive kind, preventive kind is to the most desired, but there comes a time when there must be a corrective discipline. The doctor does some corrective surgery sometimes. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves. Now, that's just the, as true as Mark 16, 16 for the alien sinner. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. And that word comes from a word that means literally out of step, a military term. And not after the tradition which they received of us. Now, there are many smooth talkers these days, and there were in Paul's day. Romans 16, 17, and 18, Now I beseech you, mark them that are causing the divisions and occasions of stumbling, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and turn away from them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Christ, but by their smooth, but their own belly, but by their smooth and fair speech, they beguile the hearts of the innocent. 
And in Titus 3, 10, and 11, a factious man, after a first and second admonition refused, knowing that such a one is perverted and sinneth, being self-condemned. For the church to be and to remain beautiful, we must practice discipline. But also, we and the church must put great emphasis upon rearing our children acceptably. The congregation doing its part and the individual members doing their part. In Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Solomon said in Proverbs 22, 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from him. Our young people need to be indoctrinated, encouraged, and ultimately, of course, saved in heaven. Children of God, to keep the church beautiful, must be a cooperative people. You remember that Paul said, as he concludes the great resurrection chapter, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he said, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, he said, For we are God's fellow workers. Ye are God's husbandry, God's building. We have all of the facilities needed. We have all of the modern technology. We have the same truth the early church had, the church of the first century, and they took the gospel to every known creature, every known nation, and to every creature under heaven. Romans 10, 10 through 18, and first, uh, Colossians 1, and in verse 23. Now, what has been done once can be done again. God would not command us. Christ wouldn't command us to do that, which is impossible for us to do. I believe that this truth is just as powerful today as it was 25 years ago, 50 years ago, 2,000 years ago. It will save the soul. It's not only powerful, it's simple enough that it can be understood. But then further, we need to make sure that we practice benevolent Christianity. Not only keep ourselves pure, but care for the widows and orphans. In James 1, 27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. I am literally ashamed that any man would ever oppose the support of a little child just because he's not old enough to be a saint or those who are saints. But a man known to many of you some years ago signed this proposition, discussed it with two of our brethren publicly, resolved it is unscriptural to take money from the church treasury to feed hungry and destitute children. If one were to be placed on our door out here, if we had no money with us individually before the elders could take a dime out of the church treasure and buy a bottle of milk for that child or put him in the hospital, this man says before you could do that, you couldn't do that, and if you did, you'd be lost for it. Resolved, he said, it is unscriptural to take funds from the church treasure to feed hungry and destitute children and all who do so will go to hell, is the way he words it. Now, if that's Christianity, I've been reading the wrong book. James 1 was addressed to the church, and it says pure religion. That's the kind of religion we're interested in. 
Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Now, it's not something else. It's this, to visit the fathers. And that doesn't mean just to knock and say, how are you? It means to assist after a thorough investigation. To visit the fathers and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, the church to remain the bride of Christ, a beautiful, the beautiful bride of Christ, must know sound doctrine. You remember the latter part of Titus 2.10? Adorn the doctrine of God. We're told to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. And Titus 2.1, but speak thou the things which become. The King James says, the American Standard says, befit sound doctrine. And in 2 Timothy 1.13, hold the pattern of sound words. We don't talk about joining the church, getting religion. We talk about obeying the gospel, the Lord adding us to the church. Hold the pattern of sound words which thou hast heard from me in faith and love which are in, which is in Christ Jesus. And the preacher must take heed unto himself. I try never to preach a sermon that I do not apply whatever part I think I need to myself, and often I need to make this application. And so we must take heed to ourselves in matters of sound doctrine. In 1 Timothy 4.16, take heed to thyself and to thy teaching. Continue in these things, for in so doing thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear thee. Now if a man does not preach sound doctrine, he ought not to be fellowship, but God's people, and if we do, we'll be guilty. Now, we have no new problems in principle. I'm very optimistic about the fact that if we'll just face up to them, I know that we can overcome them. We can teach honest people, and the mouths of false teachers can be stopped. In Paul's day, there were many false teachers. Philippians 3, 18 and 19, he said, For many walk of whom I told you often. He said, I'm now crying about it while I write. And now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is perdition, whose God is the belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. And you cannot find a passage more to the point than 2 John 9 through 11 on this. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Now, if we go to heaven, it's not only necessary to be a member of the church, we must be pure. Let me call attention to the reading one more time of a part of Ephesians 5 through verse 27. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing water with the word. In other words, these people heard the gospel, Acts 15, 7 through 9. They repented of their sins in Acts 17, 30. They confessed that Christ was the Son of God in Acts 8.37, and they were baptized in order that their sins might be remitted, Acts 2. And in verse 38, the Lord added them to the church, Acts 2.41, 
and in Acts uh, 2 and in verse 47. And so therefore they were added by the Lord to the church. But at the same time, they had to be faithful. Note again in verse 27, that he might present the church to himself a glorious church. Now note the negative. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now note the positive again. But that it should be holy and without blemish. I wonder today if you are willing to become a Christian if you're not one. I've given the plan of salvation always, and I never close a sermon unless I do. Faith, repentance, confession of Christ, and baptism for remission of sins. The erring child of God to repentance, confession, and prayer can be restored, Acts 8, 20 through 23. And faithful members who desire to be identified with this congregation are invited to let us know your desires. In conclusion, let me use these passages. Revelation 21, 1 and 2. And ask yourself, where do you fit into this, into this particular picture? And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the new Jerusalem, the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. Note, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. If you are not prepared, you can obey and be prepared while together we stand, while we sing.